Welcome back to another edition of Me and Mr. 80s. I'm Nick the Me Part, and with me again, as always, is Mr. 80s. Hi everybody, it's Daryl. Thank you for joining us again on this fine whatever day you're listening to this. <laughs> Today we're talking about memorable live performances. Ooh. <laughs> but before we do that, I wanted to give a shout out to uh to a a follower uh, of of the uh program and uh he is named Kevin Elman and he is the drummer for Todd Rundgren's Utopia the original drummer yes yeah, that's very cool and so i i just wanted to say that i i had not listened to Todd Rundgren's uh offshoot bands like uh what was the other one um Something like a Z. In oh, it. that was actually that wasn't really an offshoot. That was his first foray into professional music, the Naz. Naz, there you go. Okay, so I hadn't listened to that, and I hadn't listened to Utopia. I just knew his solo project, and so um, Kevin started following me at uh, at uh, Booze for Dollar, where I promote this pro- this podcast, and uh, so I went and uh, listened to their uh, albums. And I'm like, how did I not listen to this? I like prog rock. It's, <laughs> it's Todd Rundgren and prog rock. It's an excellent mix. Yeah. And Kevin is the drummer on the first album of theirs. Plus, they reformed in 2011 and are touring now. And he's the drummer again for them. So, thanks for uh, enjoying the uh, podcast, hopefully. And um, everyone should go out and listen to Utopia albums and go see them live. I totally agree. Since this is a live performance, I figure that's a good reason to bring that up. Absolutely. Go see him live. Uh, go, go see him live. So welcome, Kevin, and all of Kevin's friends. You've seen a lot more live shows than I have, mainly for two reasons. Number one, <laughs> uh, number one, you you know you spent many summers working at a place where people, big acts, played live. Number two, I tend to just see the same people over and over again. So. <laughs> Well, that's probably a good thing to do. It's kind of like the uh, the Grateful Dead concept. <laughs> seeing, you know, it's it's the same group, but it's always different. Once I find an artist that I enjoy seeing live, I pretty much stick to that. And I also uh, do not enjoy watching uh, live performances in large venues. And so I tend to see artists live who do not have the type of following where they can sell out a municipal stadium because I've got no interest in seeing a concert like that. Yeah, I, 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 I love live performances, but I'm not really a big fan of large, obnoxious groups of people. So, you know, it's a juxtaposition. How bad do I want to see this person and how much do I want to put up with a bunch of uh, dweebs? <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you when you go see, when you go see a concert at a smaller venue, you've got less traffic to deal with. Um, you've got a, a better chance of actually seeing the artist without getting eye strain. The sound yeah. is better. Uh, there's just a lot more benefits to to well, seeing. I mean, I know a, a guy who's a huge fan of U2 and actually went to Dublin to see them perform live in Dublin, which. On the surface, that sounds like a cool thing to do, but mm-hmm. can you just imagine how freaking annoying? your day would have been. <laughs> and it's just not even worth the inconvenience to me. Well, and also, you know, uh, the problem I always have with the, the bigger venues is that the farther away you get, the more it's like you're basically just listening to a radio show. Exactly. You know, you're so far away, they look like pebbles, you know, just dancing lights. So uh, 
and you're watching the Jumbotron, not the stage, you might as well be at home watching a DVD of the live performance. Yeah. I mean, these people that, that will waste... Two three hundred bucks on a, uh, a lot, Eagles reunion show, a, uh, or you know, a, for a good seat for a U two kind of show. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but I just think those people are idiots. Well, and I think U two to me has a little bit better because it seems like they always try and do a grand stage show along with that. It's true they do. Whereas something like you know an Eagles or something where they're pretty much just you know standing there. Or Fleetwood Mac or something, where there's not really much visual entertainment. You're, you know, so if you're sitting in the back of the stadium, you've still spent, you know, a hundred dollars to see these people, and, you know, you don't even get to see up close. You can see the animosity between them or something. Yeah. You, you really, you really can't blame the Eagles enough. You can't fault the Eagles enough for the dawn of the ridiculously overpriced concert ticket because they really are. I mean, they are the pioneers of fucking you over the anal rape concert ticket. And I never will forget when they finally got back together and they announced that they were going to be touring stadiums and tickets were going to be eighty-five dollars. And I know some of you out there that are maybe younger. are thinking to yourself, wow, $85 to see a super group is not bad. Okay. But at the point when they did this, it was so over the top. It was basically more than double what anybody had ever even considered charging for a concert ticket before. And I never will forget the way that Glenn Fry justified it. Oh my God. <laughs> he said, well, you know, a lot of acts like Neil Diamond, they tour every year. And we haven't toured in 10 years. So when you look at all the money that you saved over those previous 10 years by not having to pay to go see us in concert, this actually is a bargain. Unfortunately, he he leaves out one key thing. You didn't get any additional entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> really? Wow. That is a terrible wow. So let's just say hypothetically <laughs> that Neil Diamond performed once a year in your town for 10 years and the concert tickets were 30 bucks and so you ended up spending $300 to see Neil Diamond over a 10-year period versus the $85 you're going to spend to see the Eagles. Okay, so using, yes, then it does seem like, oh, well, that's cheap. The only problem is you got ten evenings of entertainment. <laughs> yeah, you got an hour and a half performance or two hours worth of performance for ten years. So let's see, two times ten, that's now, you know, or you can go to the Eagles where they played, you know, an hour and a half. Yeah, good logic, Glenn. <laughs> and I, I, I never will forget, yeah, I, I used to read a... uh a local entertainment magazine when I was a teenager before I could drive and all these concerts for these big acts would come to town and you know I couldn't even conceive of going because I couldn't drive myself and so I would just kind of sit and drool over it. So I remember these big stars would come to town like Hall and Oates and Prince and Duran Duran and their concert tickets were twelve bucks. <laughs> twelve bucks. And uh and then in the same kind of time period, Springsteen's on the Born in the USA tour. And uh, people were outraged. Outraged, I tell you, when he decided to do stadiums and charge $17. Oh, 
They were like the unmitigated gall of this guy to charge $17 for a concert ticket. That he plays for three and a half hours. <laughs> Come on. So you fast forward a few years and the Eagles are charging 85 bucks. I mean, it, it boggles the mind. And, and it just took off from there because, I mean, now any major act, what, the, the first 10 or 15 rows, I mean, you're probably looking at two, three hundred dollar seats. Well, and now they've gone deluxe and now where you, you're getting this, you know, concert experience. Mm-hmm. So you can, you're paying for the, you know, the tour. You, you're getting a backstage meet and greet. You're getting, you know, a, a photo album and, you know, uh, I don't know, a sandwich and a hearty handshake. <laughs> I mean, who the fuck cares? But then you're paying like three or four hundred dollars. Yeah. I mean, wow. I mean, I mean the, the big the big tours now you can't even get in the building for under fifty bucks. Yeah, and you're going to be sitting up by the rafters for the fifty dollars, and you can have it, man. Yeah, more I, power to you. I think, and I would have thought that maybe that would spark the resurgence of the you know, the Lollapalooza type show where you get a bunch of acts together and go out on tour, but. You know, Coachella and Lollapalooza are now in a set area, and you want to—if you want to see it, you pay a big fee, but you go down to see them for a weekend or a couple of days, and that's it. You know, there is no major touring. I don't even know does Warp tour even go anymore. Yeah, Warp I mean, still Warp still goes around, uh, but you know, you're gonna—you're kind of that definitely appeals to a younger one. One sign of stigma to the audience, but I think even didn't they even try and do a Lilith Fair? Uh, resurgence of that, but I don't think that. I yeah, that's the that. last little affair they had to uh, to cancel. To cancel, yeah. So I thought that would be because you know if you're going to spend a hundred bucks, it's a lot easier to spend a hundred bucks to me at least to go see five or six acts. Well, like spending a hundred bucks to go see the rock and roll induction ceremonies. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a night of legendary performances. That's bucks for two of you, though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean that's that's fifty bucks a ticket. That's, yeah, that, but that's not bad. That's in a smaller venue. Very small. And uh, and when you think about the cool stuff that not only you know you're going to see, but the cool stuff you might see. Yeah. That's different. Yeah, but that's worth to me. That's worth every penny. Yeah. But you know, there I don't know if there's a lot of acts that I would pay a stadium tour seat for fifty bucks to go see. You know, I, I can't uh, think of a single one. I mean, unless unless the the zombie soul legends that we talked about on the last show, unless they came back from the dead and went on tour, that I and they were only playing stadiums, that I might consider. But I think the only one I can think of would be Prince, since I still haven't seen him live. I, I want to see him before he disappears, <laughs> goes back a, to whatever planet he came from. And, that's probably a good one. But that's the only one I can think of. I mean, otherwise, I want to go see someone in a small venue and actually be able to enjoy, you know, seeing them. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, we're talking about uh, you know, people that you wouldn't, you haven't seen live you want to. Prince is on my list. Uh, I would love to see Springsteen live, but he only ever plays the huge venues, so I just don't mm-hmm. think it's ever going to happen unless he does another one of his... Uh, Acoustic, solo acoustic shows where he plays the smaller venues. The problem is they sell out so freaking fast. It's, yeah. it's hard to get in. Uh, but you know, Glenn Campbell, who mm-hmm. I've just gotten into within the, the last couple of years, and then, you know, suddenly the guy gets, announces he's got Alzheimer's and he's, he's on the pop culture radar again. Uh, and he's doing his farewell tour. 
and uh, he, he's playing near us, and I was pretty much a lock that I was going to go, but I was having this, this internal conversation with myself of, you know, how, how he's got Alzheimer's. And everybody keeps saying, well, he's in the early stages. Mm-hmm. But still, it's like being in the early stages of mercury poisoning. You know, I mean, it gets still pretty bad. Yeah. And so I was kind of hemming and hawing because I remembered how bad I felt that I missed out on seeing Sinatra live because the, uh, mm-hmm. the tour that he was doing with uh, Sammy and uh, Dean, I think, or was it Sammy and Liza, came right through our area and I didn't go. And then... That was it. He stopped touring. And so mm-hmm. I was thinking, and really, maybe I should. Well, I saw him on Conan O'Brien oh. performing live. And I realized I don't want to pay money to see what I'm going to be seeing. He just, he can't. Uh, the he, shadow of his former yeah, self. He can't hold the note anymore. He's got that oh. kind of, he's got that kind of look on his face like, I'm out here because they told me to come out here. Uh, and like he stops in the middle. First, he comes out. He says how happy he is to be there. Halfway through the song, he stops singing to say again how happy he is to be there, and then stops in the middle of the song to introduce his guitar player. Oh, it was just. I realized the guy is sick. I'm not making fun of the guy for being sick. I'm just saying I don't want to see that. Yeah, that that's that's unfortunate and not really. Well. That's that's just unfortunate all the way around. <laughs> Not really gold to mine there. Here's your Lane Staley moment for this week's episode. <laughs> so now that we've talked about the high price of concert tickets and Alzheimer's disease, um, do you remember your first concert? I do. It's not going to have much relevancy, though, to any people outside of our area because it was the Michael Stanley band. Well, you know, that's actually that's a great story of that band. I mean, you know, the every every town and probably across the world has their own uh, local hero, the guy or gal or band who in that one area in that town is, you know, a legend. You know, he's. They're the you know, like with Michael Stanley. I mean, he's you know does drive time radio on the local TV. He was doing the PM Magazine TV mm-hmm. show. I mean, he's in this area. He's huge. Everyone knows him. He sold a ton of records. Sells out concerts. I mean, huge guy. But you go out. You know, he's a might be kind of an exception to this rule because he did actually have like a one hit wonder status. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think a lot of people can relate to that. That concept. So the, yeah, they were my first, uh, my first concert, and it was at the uh, the front row theater up in uh, Gates Mills, which I believe is closed. And the front row was a uh, smaller venue. I wish I knew how many people it seated. Wasn't that but like it, dinner theater? Well, no, it was in the round. Okay, that was yeah, what was kind of what, what was kind of cool about it was that it was in the round. What was irritating about it was that the stage spun. That was a oh. little disorienting through the uh, entire performance. Yes. Oh, that's weird. That is weird. You'd almost prefer. I mean, I know being behind the band would kind of suck, but uh, I think they did it since they booked acts that were not necessarily doing in the round. Because usually, when a tour is in the round. They've got the stage oriented in a way that the lead singer can kind of move the 360 to engage different people. So I think they just kind of did that for them. 
Anyway, that's where I saw them. That was, uh, and then it, it actually ended up that the uh, following year they, the, the the band broke up. Interesting thing about the front row, mm-hmm. while I'm thinking about it, it was um, the last place that Roy Orbison played before he died. Oh, really? Huh. I wonder if they spun him around, too. I'm sure they did. <laughs> uh, but then my second concert was Fats Domino. Wow. Where was he playing? He was playing in Sarasota. Hmm. We had moved by then. I had moved out of northeast Ohio to uh, the Gulf Coast of Florida and saw Fats Domino. And that is that is something I will was never, he, never forget. Was he still in good? I mean, I oh, assume yeah. by then he was probably much you know past his... Uh, Initial prime. Yeah, so. this, this was like 1986, so this is well after uh, his his popular mm. era. Was this his resurgence? Wasn't there something with the Fat Boys? Um, didn't they do something with? Uh, the it was twist? Chubby Checker. Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> that was the twist, the Chubby Checker. But no, it was it was cool. He uh, his backing band came out and did kind of a. Uh, they were his also his opening act, and so they came mm-hmm. out and did uh, about a half hour of instrumental kind of uh, soul jazz R and B type stuff, and then Fats came out and did his show, and it was awesome. And uh, at the end of the show, when he's doing his big finale, and uh, his his big thing is uh, he stands up, and as he's playing, uh, he takes the uh, the top of his legs between the knees and the hips, and bumps the piano. So the piano will like fly, kind of bump across the stage, and so that, that's kind of what he does for his finale. He's standing mm. up as he's bumping the piano across the stage, and then uh, <laughs> so it was, it was neat. That's cool. That that reminds me of uh, one of the ones I was extremely happy to see. Have seen people before uh, that you had a chance to see. I got to see BB King play, and uh, he he had they came out, you know, like. And did his, his, his band was his opening. This was a, a festival tour where they had him and Buddy Guy, who was another one of those ones I always wanted to see. And, uh, I think they ended with, uh, Eric Johnson. And, uh, you know, they, the, the band came out before him and then they, you know, played, you know, a, a set of, you know, two or three songs. Then they had BB King come out and then they, he did a small set because uh, it was, you know, a full day of blues people, but uh, I was—he—he he sounded great, he looked great, played great, and uh, I also remember that uh, this was, you know, uh, early '90s. So there, oddly enough, it sounds crazy, but there weren't a lot of wireless um, setups. So it was really amazingly cool when Buddy Guy. Uh, hooked uh, his guitar car up wireless and started walking around this amphitheater playing guitar I and bet. just walking through the crowd. That was that was awesome because you know I was working up at the the top of the pavilion, so he I, I was I was able to be that close to him, you know, while he's playing guitar and just um, being amazing. So that, that would have been so he was playing. He was like walking through the pavilion. Yeah, he was just walking through the you know right through the the aisles of the of the pavilion playing the guitar. 
and, and people were cool about it. You know, you kind of wonder like, they were like grabbing at him. They were if they were going to mob him, no, because he just he he didn't stay. He didn't really stand anywhere mm-hmm. until he got to the top of the pavilion, and then uh, there's a, a grassy hill where the uh, the lawn people sit, and so he got all the way up there, and then you know walked by the uh, lawn so that they could see him, and that, that was yeah, that was awesome. He was amazing. As far as legends, I also uh, I saw Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter when they were touring behind their One Plus One album in the late 90s, and it was just piano and sax. They didn't even have a band with them. Oh, wow. And uh, sat on uh, Herbie's side of the stage, and he had his piano uh, uh, positioned so that he... uh, so that you could kind of see the keys. So instead of him kind of like sitting behind this piano and looking out, uh, it's, it was kind of slanted with his back towards the one half of the audience. And the side that, that we were on, I was able to get a really good shot of his uh, hands mm. on the keys for the whole show. We were like in the sixth or eighth row. so uh, And that was you know something that I'll never forget. And Wayne Shorter seemed like he was stoned. Oh really? <laughs> Not in a bad way, but he just he just okay. seemed he just seemed a little you know, a little loose, a little cool, you know. Well, they they call him jazz cigarettes for a reason. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, my my uh, first concert is is a wonderfully embarrassing tale. Ah. I had the hots for Belinda Carlisle. Yes, you did. And I was in Columbus at the time, and of course, surprise of surprises, nobody who was my friend wanted to go and see her. She was not cool. She was, you know, pop top 40, lead singer of the Go-Go's, going solo. Is this Mad About You era, or is this Heaven on Earth era? Oh, no, Heaven on Earth, Heaven on Earth. Okay. And um, that was actually the, the album that I kind of figured out who she was i'd known who the google the the google doll, or the google dolls <laughs> yeah. the go-go's the go-go were. dolls <laughs> well you know that um and so she was playing at the uh ohio state fair which is a big Weird. ass a big ass venue um it's also, but str- it's also strange for an artist who was like currently in the top 10 to be playing a fair yeah, but this was, since it was for the, you know, uh, like, uh, it was a big venue. I mean, they, they, at least, you know, back this in the, a classic back in band. the, back in the, well, back in the 80s, they did get a lot of big names who were playing that. And so this was, you know, at the height of her popularity. I mean, they, they did end up, I think, selling the whole thing out. And she was playing in like the middle of a, uh, a racetrack. That's where the, the stage was set up. So you were, you know, they had a few people that were next to the inner, inner part of the racetrack, then the racetrack, and then then seats for the rest of the people. And so, remember your story because I I don't want to forget. Okay, but this oh, is man. this is reminding me of when me, you, and your brother decided to go see Rick Springfield <laughs> at the Ribs Burnoff in Cleveland. I and love so that. we get there and we're driving around and we're trying to find a freaking place to park <laughs> and we finally get in a parking garage and we get out and we're walking toward the fair and we're like, oh my god, we can hear music. The show has already started. How did we get our times wrong? And we're walking and we're walking and we're walking and we're trying to get to the stage and we finally get to the stage and we find out that you actually did need a ticket to get inside 
the gates, mm. which had not been well publicized. No. And so we're trying to find a good place outside of the gates to still see the show, and we're getting in position. And we finally, we stand there, and he finishes the song, and we're getting ready for him to go into the next song. And he goes, thank you, good night! <laughs> and we're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Not not even like, you know, end of the show, comes back for an encore. End of the encore, strum, last note, good night, done. Everyone starts getting up and walking away. <laughs> We're standing there like, we just got here. <laughs> <sighs> yes, that was my best concert fail remembrance. Anyway, so back to Belinda Carlisle. <laughs> Uh, and you, we didn't even stay at the fair no. after that, after Rick Springfield. We're just like, oh, okay, what do we do now? I guess we're going <laughs> home. You, you want a Dumbo here? No. Okay, let's get the fuck out of here. That was it. <laughs> yeah. Well, this was uh, more embarrassing for the uh, the uh, pop craziness of it rather than the. Uh, hilarious, you know, failure of time. But I, I basically said, okay, well, I, I have to go see Belinda Carlisle. No one will go with me. So I'm 16. I will just drive my car. I'll take the, you know, my car out there and go myself. And, you know, I, I tried to get there early. So, cause I, I hate having bad seats at concerts as we talked about earlier. So I, I got there early and I had a, uh, one of those little five-inch TVs, <laughs> and I remember watching an episode of uh, Battlestar Galactica on the thing while I'm waiting for the show to start. And we're talking like old, like Lauren Green Battlestar Galactica. Oh, right? oh yeah, that's right. Yes, I forgot the the oh, the old old version long before they. Uh, well, it was like some it was like some UHF channel in Columbus showing it syndicated. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, it was just you know yeah it wasn't live or anything. It was just you know. I mean, this was this was like on a, on a Saturday evening or something. <laughs> okay, so you're watching BSG. So I'm just sitting there all by myself in the middle of this gigantic place, you know, that has all these big rafters, and I'm just one person sitting there all by myself watching the TV, waiting for Belinda Carlisle. I still have the poster for that I, that I bought from that day uh, in the basement somewhere. <laughs> I had it on frame. I, yeah, I, I love that picture of her too. So was it a good show? Honestly, I don't really remember. I mean, I can remember uh, I took a, a camera, but you know, it was just like a you know dinky disposable camera, and you were so far away that the pictures basically just looked like you know brilliant colored ants. I mean, it was just you know ridiculous. Hmm. And well, I remember liking it, but you know that you know I, at the time you know thinking she was awesome. I'm sure she you know could have done her you know rendition of. I don't know, sitar music, and I would have thought it was excellent. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but it was, it, you know, it was just silly to have, you know, to go through that much trouble to uh, be, you know, a million miles away and not really do anything more than, you know, buy a concert poster of it. But that was the first one. <laughs> memories to last a lifetime, though. <laughs> you were creating memories with yourself. <laughs> The players with yourself club. Yes. <laughs> I'm talking two ply, baby. <laughs> uh, you know when you were working at uh, at the shed, uh, I I remember we went to see uh, Henry Mancini conducting the Cleveland Orchestra. Yes, and that was a kick ass show. Absolutely, I saw it twice. I, I was you know, I came back the next night with you. 
And uh, I will never forget uh, his version of On the Turning Away oh, that was by awesome. Pink Floyd, which I actually think is better than the Pink Floyd version yeah. of that song. And he did, you know, he did Baby Elephant Walk, he did Peter Gunn, uh, he did Moon River. I mean, he did Pink, Flo- or Pink Panther, yeah. Did the greatest, the greatest hits of of Henry, but that was quite awesome. And he actually ended up passing away then, uh, within a few years after that. So mm-hmm. that was kind of a, a cool memory to to be able to see that. Yeah, that was very cool. And I was just thinking about that. Uh, I don't know why I was thinking about that, but there's something about Mancini, and I, I remembered. Remember that show and turning uh, on the turning was a great version. And you know, we, we're not expecting that, of course. Oh, hell no! Okay. And when he turns around and, and tells the audience, you know, that he's what he's going to be doing, and he says he's going to be you know doing a Pink Floyd song, and I, uh, the first thing I'm thinking is, well, that that's different. <laughs> but I'm thinking he's going to be doing something from either The Wall or from uh, Dark Side of the Moon. I'm, I'm thinking he's going to be doing one of the older ones. And then he's like, you know, I'm it, uh, on the turning away, which I was not really, I'm not a big, a big Floyd fan anyway, but the the newer stuff, well, at that time it was newer, uh, <laughs> was just kind of like, oh, well, this I ought to be. done much else new, so it still is the newer stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this ought, this ought to be interesting, and it just blew me away. Yeah. Just blew me away. It's always nice, you know, when an old guy can surprise you, and he did. Well, and you would think that if you're going to do something where, you know, uh, your audience may not know the band, you may do something that's more uh, noticeable for the, you know, like uh, something, one of their big hits, because yeah. I don't really think that was a big hit for them. Mm-mm. So that was, uh, in, uh, in all points, a uh, surprise, but an excellently well-done surprise. He knew what he was doing. Yep, yep. Whenever people ask me what the best concert is that I've ever seen, there's a couple of them, but the one that I like to mention is because it's the biggest surprise mm. was seeing Loverboy in 1995. Uh, number one, no one really thinks of Loverboy as being a, you know, when you say, you know, top live acts of all time, nobody thinks Loverboy. <laughs> and then in 1995, I mean, they were so far past their prime at that point. Mm-hmm. And, I don't know, maybe it was, you know, lowered expectations, why it seemed so good. Uh, but I saw them in a, a very small venue, because it was 1995. <laughs> and uh, at that point, you know, knew that Mike Reno had a bit of a weight problem. But when he walks out on stage, uh, I'm looking at him, I'm, I'm saying to myself, it, is that John Goodman? <laughs> Is that Mike Reno wearing a bulletproof vest for some reason? <laughs> and then I realized, no, it's it's just a T-shirt. It's just Mike oh. Reno in a T-shirt. He's, I mean, he's he's huge. He's completely out of shape. And he starts singing, and he sounds exactly like Mike Reno. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> I mean, because this guy obviously is not taking care of himself. <laughs> He sounds great. And so they, they do a, a really kick-ass show. The band sounds awesome. He sounds awesome. And then after singing for like an hour and 15 minutes, they come back to do the encore, and they save the big ballad, This Could Be the Night, for the encore. And, you know, usually by the end of a show, the lead singer's voice is shredded. Mm-hmm. And the last thing they want to do is be, you know, singing a, a, a ballad, but they've got a croon. And he, I mean, he nailed it. He sounded fantastic and it just it always really impressed me uh just how good how good they were 
and I just wasn't expecting. I mean, I was expecting to have a good time at the show because I like their music, but I was not expecting them to be that good. You know, I, I actually have a, a lover boy experience from my uh, my days at the shed, and uh, it's one of those ones that I can still picture in my head. Um, they they at this time this was probably. This had to have been around that time, maybe ninety six, ninety seven, or something. Mm-hmm. They had been, they were the opening act for somebody else, and they had had some sort of problem um, with, um, like, I'm not exactly sure, but they were having to use, you know, rented equipment, and they didn't have their stage clothes um, for this show. <laughs> yeah, it was just, it, just one of those crappy ass days. Um, but I'm standing. Uh, stage right, uh, watching the, the show with a couple of, of, uh, the road crew there. And they're performing on stage and, uh, Reno is just going around having fun and he starts, he picks up some sort of towel and starts doing that little like weird thing where you put it through your legs and kind of hump it a little. Uh-huh. And he does that and he looks over at us and, and we're all like, yeah, all right. <laughs> and then, you know, he you know, goes, does something else, comes back, does the thing with the towel again, looks at us, and, you know, the crowd is now more like maybe two or three people, and, you know, like two people and me. And he does it again, he looks over, and he's like, yeah! And then he goes around, does it around, comes back, and I'm now the only person standing there. <laughs> and he looks over at me, and he does it again, and he goes, and he has that look of like, Oh, I'm not going to get approval. Huh? Oh, no. And I went, yeah, thumbs up, dude, yeah. And he's like, yeah. I was like, that's awesome. You validated my creative. Yes, exactly. That was just a, a kick-ass little performance right there. And just nice little moment with Mike Reno. So did they have time to sound check with the, with the equipment? They didn't. But they still sounded excellent. I mean, that, that was one of the things I think while, why people were, you know, standing around, I think they were trying to make sure that they didn't suck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that they, the sound and everything came off well, and they did. They sounded great. And he was thinner this time, because I think I remember at the time that we were surprised he was uh, a thinner Mike Reno. Yeah, he did. He, at the time that, uh, that I saw them in 95, he was kind of at the peak. Of his wow, uh, and then he did. He lost weight and he looked pretty good for a, a while. And uh, now he's he's you know put it all back on and then some. Uh, but still, you know, sounds sounds really good. Just uh, looks more like you know a drinking buddy of your dad's than a rock star these days. But you know, he's he's old. What are you gonna do? Yeah, it happens. And Shit happens. We all get older. <laughs> And it seems with uh, rock stars, at least, or you know, music stars, that the the fluctuating weight is a is a common occurrence. You know, we were just talking about this off air a little bit with uh, Christina Aguilera, who seems to uh, bounce up and down with her weight, and the uh, the great Luther Vandross and his <laughs> uh, uh, stop for love was the the one I always remember where he's. The, the video for Stop to Love is this, like, cheesy 80s song, but I really love it. Great song. And the video for it, he is thin as a rail in this all-white uh, suit. But he's like 160, probably. Yeah, <laughs> just And, you know, every other thing you see of him, I mean, like, l- when people think Luther, they think of the, the bigger Luther, I think. 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, you know, the one, one hit wonder sort of remembrance of him is this, you know, tiny man in this, you know, bright white jumpsuit is crazy. But I would, uh, as far as like the most consistent best live performer out there, I would encourage, uh, people to go see Colin Hay, <laughs> the former lead singer of Men at Work. Who tours relentlessly and probably is playing in your town or near your town because mm-hmm. he's he's just he's he's always on tour. You can check his tour dates at ColinHay.com. And he's also uh been featured on Scrubs uh in when it was on the air for you know, like in the later seasons he was on the show as an as an actor or something. He would pop up and he would also do songs on the show. Yeah, because the uh <clears throat> The creator of that show, Bill Bill Stevens, Bill Stevens. Bill something or other, and Zach Braff, the star, were our our fans of his. But uh, typically, if he's not playing one of the coasts, if he's not playing the West Coast where he lives or the East Coast where some of the major cities are, uh, for the for the coast, he'll usually have his his full band. But if he's playing uh, flyover country, uh, like where we live. It's usually solo acoustic just because of the economics. It's just easier to, to travel alone to gigs like that. Uh, and you will have a, a really good time. Uh, he, uh, he's continued to put out records since Bennett Work has broken up. He's now put out 10 or 11 solo albums, I think. So you're not going to hear a whole lot of Bennett Work tunes. Uh, you'll be lucky if you hear four. Uh, and the the albums are they getting better released now? Some of them were hard to find, were they? Yeah, he's for the last probably decade he's been with an independent label called Compass, and he's got pretty decent distribution. And and pretty much uh, except for, he put out two records on major labels when Minute Work first broke up that are currently out of print, and you can only get them uh, through like auction sites or finding them used. Uh, but everything else, uh, the stuff that he had put out on his own is out there and available now. So pretty much the, the, the vast majority of his solo stuff you can get uh, out there somewhere. But he's a really excellent live performer. He's really turned into a, uh, an awesome guitar player, kind of a, uh, <clears throat> almost like a Lindsey Buckingham kind of a style, a uh, very similar uh, guitar playing style to Lindsey Buckingham, I would say, but just a really, really proficient. And so the sound that he can make with just his voice and his guitar is is good. But, Kind of a long way of getting to it. But he's also an excellent storyteller, not just with his songs. If you go to a show, you're also going to get a little bit of a mini stand-up act where he tells you some uh, fabulous stories from the road. So it's a, it's a good time, and tickets are usually like 20 bucks. So, And he usually plays a, a good, decent-sized venue where it's small enough that you'll be able to get close. I mean, how, how big is the Kent stage? What is that? Maybe a 500 seater? Yeah, I mean that's <laughs> that's about as intimate as you can get. So that's my excellent I, I, choice. I, I see him all the time when he comes through. Um, I was trying to think of what the, the best performance. I think one of the ones I remember the best was uh, seeing uh, Lenny Kravitz during his uh, second album. That would have been... Uh, Mama said? Yeah, yeah. And uh, he was playing uh, around here at the Agora, 
which is actually, you know, people actually put out albums live from the Agora and stuff like that. So it's, you know, might be known to someone other than, you know, this area. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a small enough venue that, uh, we, we, when we, when we got there, we were, you know, one of the first people in line to wait to get in there. And, uh, we didn't want to get right up against the stage because we were worried that someone, might try and mosh into us or something, and I really didn't want to deal with that. So we got, you know, a little bit behind that. And yeah, he was a uh, he was awesome. He was uh, he put on a great performance, and uh, it was. Uh, I actually I remember the opening act because I that was uh, stress. You you have probably remembered hearing me play that uh, band's album. There they had a name problem, so they ended up going by Stress UK. <laughs> Um, but yeah, all around that was, they, they just sounded great and, uh, that was the first time I'd seen them perform and, uh, it was a good small venue so you could really, you know, at the, I remember at, at the, um, in between the end of the show and the encore, I, I would say he, he must have gone really stoned because he came out looking very red eyed and, uh, <laughs> he did his set closer of, uh, Let Love Rule, which was the, uh, Title track from the first album, and it must have been you know like a you know twenty five minute performance. You know, it just went on, and you know the whole crowd is swaying along. And <laughs> we wish we were as high as you. <laughs> Some of us are. That was a really good show. Is that where we saw the Star Guitar concert? Yes, with yeah. Todd Rundgren. Good reference for uh, Kevin Elman fans that are listening. And actually, that's also uh, Todd's double live album, Back to the Bars. Uh, one of the venues that was recorded at was the Agora. Okay. That made me think of the Akron Agora, which is where I saw Junkyard of the Black Crows. <laughs> and what, what was your line about the Black Crows? <laughs> oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, he was <clears throat> he was singing the song twice as hard from the first album. Now, is he talking about his dick? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Junkyard was an awesome blues-based rock band. That was on Geffen Records at the same time as Guns N' Roses, and everybody thought that uh, Junkyard was going to be the bigger band. And then <laughs> that didn't happen, and they dropped off the face of the earth. But for a brief few months, when Geffen really believed in Junkyard, uh, they were on the radio, and they were doing this tour, and it was a club tour, and so they came to the Akron Agora. And it just so happened that the Black Crows were their opening act. So... <laughs> I went to the Agora to see Junkyard and had to endure, had to sit through the Black Crows just to get to Junkyard. And was really kind of irritated by it because at that point, uh, Jealous Again Jealous again. was the only single. And uh, so I just always find it quite funny that I've seen the Black Crows live but didn't really care and was just kind of hoping they would get <laughs> off so that Junkyard could take the stage. That's the, my wonderful, weird recollection uh, of uh, the Black Crows. I was watching uh, MTV News, and they had uh, footage of a live performance of the Black Crows before their, uh, or like, I think it was the album was being released the next day, and they were doing some sort of... Um, press show so they could promote the album and try and, you know, get the uh, the news to, you know, 
pay attention to this thing. So I'm seeing this live performance, uh, and it was just only like a part of the live performance, uh, like, you know, 30 seconds worth of it. And they're saying, and so now, you know, the, the album's out today. So I was like, wow, I love this. I'm going to go buy it. So I just hop in the car and go buy the album and, uh, on cassette, because that's how long ago this was. And I'm, I'm blasting it in my stereo, windows rolled down, uh, driving away. And this is the only time this has ever happened to me. Uh, I'm stopped at a stoplight, blasting this thing out. And the car next to me, this, this girl, you know, keeps trying to get my attention. The, the car in, in there wanted to know what this, you know, what the song was I was playing because they loved it so much. So there you go. Never heard of the guys buy their album and, you know, people are clamoring. And then clamoring. went back to their apartment and had sex. <laughs> oh no, wait. This is our lives. <laughs> oh no, wait. This isn't a porno. <laughs> I actually, uh, I saw the, uh, I saw the video on MTV for Set Adrift on Memory Bliss. Good song. And, uh, literally, uh, when the video was over, turned the TV off, got in my car, and drove to the record store and bought the album. <laughs> that's the only time that's ever happened, because I was like, this is amazing. See, I've done that, uh, I've done that a couple of times. Uh, I was watching a movie that was being shown on TV called Fandango. Which had a incredibly young Kevin Costner on there, and in the show they had a song that I absolutely loved, called "Can't Find My Way Home." And at the time, I'd never heard it before, and I didn't know who it was. All I knew was that the uh, the group was named Blind Faith. Of course, Blind Faith is the super group <laughs> with uh, half of Traffic and uh, uh, Eric Clapton. And, you know, legendary song, but so I went down, you know, immediately just turned the thing off, you know, after the, the thing was over, got in my car and went and bought the album. And I did it again. I used to tape, uh, 120 minutes, uh, the show on, uh, MTV, and it was on at ridiculously, you know, late morning hours. So I would just, fuck it, I'd just tape it and watch it the next day. I'm watching it and they world premiered the video for, uh, Crap, what was it called? The, the first track from uh, Green Day's Dookie album. Uh, not Basket Days. Yeah, Longview. Is that it? Is that the, wow. It's been so long the since... The song I, about masturbating on the, the couch. The song about masturbating. That's yeah. Longview. Yeah, okay. So I hear that and I'm like, I love that. Hopped in the car, went out and bought the album. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I I get impulsive like that. Now now with the internet, so hell, I can just you know call something on Spotify and boom, right there. Well, I did, but as we're talking about live performances, I also wanted to talk about some groups that I have not ever gotten to see live in person, but who have reputations for being good live acts uh, hmm. that uh, that I maybe have seen uh, in other capacities. And uh, Phil Collins uh, put out the, uh, uh, the f- what was it called, the first final farewell tour DVD. Oh, mm-hmm. And it is an amazing, amazing video. Uh, it was, it was live in Paris. And the show is so long that it takes two TV, two DVDs to mm, cover it. Wow. I mean, he does basically everything. Well, except of course from the second album, the redheaded stepchild that he pretends doesn't exist. Uh, and it's just an absolutely, uh, incredible, incredible, uh, live performance. It's, 
you know, huge budget, so you know, big stage, big band, but he's in fine voice, and it's just it's a uh, it's a great concert. And then the DVD is a really excellent value because not only is there you know this concert spread over two DVDs, then there are bonus the music videos for every single song oh, wow. that he plays, and then there's a, a handful of uh, making of documentaries. So that's that's really cool. Uh, but what I really wanted to get into was, remember the show called By Request, Live By Request on A&E? Um, more, but I remember the name of it, but I don't, I don't know how many times I saw it. And this was something that they did once with Tony Bennett, and mm-hmm. then it became a regular series. And actually, uh, it gets a created by Tony Bennett credit on it, because really? apparently it was his idea, where uh, a performer would come on A&E... And it would be hosted by Mark McEwen, who used to be the weather guy on the CBS Morning Show. Mm-hmm. And they would allow, uh, as the live thing is happening, is literally is live on A&E, and so people can phone in or send emails and request songs. And they would periodically take calls from people that were requesting songs and uh, have them you know, tell a little story about why they were requesting the song, and then they would play it. Uh, and Hall & Oates did one. That's the one I remember. <laughs> and it was, I remember as I was watching it, being like, this is just one of those uh, live performances that is transcendent. It is just, there's there's something special happening here. And every now and again it happens with a live performance. You really can't quite put your finger on it, but it's just a little something extra. And it actually turns out that they agreed because they ended up putting that out on on DVD. And so it just kind of allows me to say that Hall & Oates have always had a reputation for being an excellent live act. Mm-hmm. And yet that's one of those things they're not really known for. Well, I would think that, you know, anyone who can pull off those vocal harmonies live should get a lot of credit. Because <laughs> having heard many people who, you know, like a... Like a Crosby, Stills, and Nash at Woodstock, you know. Yeah, it's, when you can't pull off vocal harmonies, it doesn't really sound good. So <laughs> if you can pull it off and, you know, and make it you know, sound great, you're, you're already a step ahead of everybody else. And then I just recently saw a little bit, I saw a documentary actually about uh, Billy Joel uh, doing the concert for Closing Down Shea Stadium. Hmm. And it was the same kind of thing. It was just... Uh, you know Billy Joel, his voice is shot, uh, but he he sounded pretty good for these for these concerts. And it was just another one of those kind of transcendent. How recent is that? Uh, what Shea closed down in two thousand eight. Really? Okay. Yeah. Hmm. I'm blanking on all my favorite things. So <laughs> you have something else? Uh, I thought for sure you'd have. Uh, no, I, I I have so many you know things, but I think that they all sort of crowd in my brain. Uh, I remember, well, I remember, uh, I got to see, um, Metallica the first time you, you, you mentioned you had, you'd seen Metallica, but mm-hmm. I, I saw them, uh, again when I was working at the shed and, uh, it was during their, uh, load, which it's not really my favorite album of theirs, but I really love Metallica. So I was glad to see them. And, uh, you know, when I was working, um, this was when I was only working as an usher and so I was uh, up towards the front of the stage, and it was one of the uh, few times I was up that close because usually they don't want me 
in the towards the front of the stage because I'm six foot nine and I'll block everyone's view. <laughs> but you know, when you have people who might be a problem, you put a six foot nine man towards the front of the stage and they stop being a problem. Um, so. Uh, so after that show, the first time ever, they said, we need some people to go backstage and work the after show. And I'm like, fuck yeah. <laughs> oh, so uh, I guess this will turn into a story because I now remember this. Uh, um, just recently, Metallica got back together to do these uh, uh, week of shows to celebrate their anniversary of yeah. being born. And one of the things they did was bring back Jason Newstead. And... Uh, to me, I got to see them twice, once for reload, once for load and once for reload, those tours at the place I was working. And he was the face of the band in those two shows. I can't tell you, you know, anything else, but he was always available for the fans. He was always incredibly friendly, stayed longest of all of them to sign autographs and do all the kind of stuff. The second time he had, um, I assume it was his wife, girlfriend or something, nice-looking blonde girl, also friendly, just an incredibly nice person. And um, so anyway, so at the at the backstage of the show, they, again, being gigantic, they set me at the, what I would think is the coolest place, is there is the area where the dressing norms rooms were, and then there was a, a doorway, and then there was the backstage uh, meet-and-greet area. And I was the person who had to stand in between those two places and let only the right people go in and out of there. So that meant that the band had to pass right past me to get into the backstage uh, meet-and-greet area. So um, this is the first time I'd ever worked backstage, you know, and uh, he was the uh, Jason Newstead was the first one out. And so he walked, and I just turned around, and there he was. And, <laughs> and I made an audible gasp. <laughs> I was just, <gasps> and unbelievably nice guy. He said, that's it, one big deep breath. And he took a deep breath, let it out, and he goes, all right, now let's go do this. And he walked in there, and the crowd, you know, of, of you know, 20 or 30 people just went crazy. And he was just incredibly nice about that. I was just like, oh, I can't believe how embarrassing that is. But I, you know, first time I'd ever met a rock star and he was, you know, within an arm's reach of me and that was, that was cool. And then so the rest of the time they all went through, uh, the rest of the band and, uh, Lars is really short. Now I, I'm six foot nine, so everyone to me is short, but he was really short. I was just not expecting him to be that short. But it was, they were all, they were all nice. So the next time I got to see them, I was working backstage and I had, you know, been able to hang around with Rockstar, so I had no, no gasping moment. But I will say that in all the years, they're the only time I ever asked, uh, for an autograph. Cause I, you know, I've, I've heard the stories of, uh, people who, you know, try and work backstage and try and, you know, make these people work, you know, give them autographs and do all sorts of things for them. And I'm like, that's, that's not ever how I work. You know, you're just a person. I'm just doing my job. We're cool. Mm -hmm. But, uh, my friend Jason, uh, was a big fan of theirs and, uh, not your friend Jason Newstead, another friend of yours named Jason. Right. Was a, was a, was a metallic fan. And, uh, and so I asked their production manager, you know, he's a big fan. Do you mind if I get it, you know, something autographed for him? And he's like, yeah, he's doing a meet and greet, you know, there. Here's a, here's a backstage pass. Go get him sign it for you. 
So they actually, you know, let me stop doing my work for, you know, 20 minutes to go down there. And I just stood in line with, you know, a handful of other people. And he's sitting there, again, just totally friendly, sitting there, talking with the fans. I, you know, I uh, went in there, got the thing signed, and uh, he noticed that I was, a, you know, a, a PA and just shook my hand said, doing a good job so far. And it's just, you know, just a really, really nice guy. So. Yeah, he had that reputation for being a for being a nice guy. So that was those that was quite memorable, and the concerts were good. <laughs> See, now I saw I saw Metallica at a notoriously uh, at a venue with notoriously bad acoustics, the the Coliseum, <laughs> which uh, is it's an indoor arena that used to be around here, and it was it was kind of crazy because it was actually built to be a basketball stadium, but they did a lot of concerts there. And it had a reputation for being a crappy place to see a basketball game and a crappy place to see a concert. So it really doesn't make any sense. But I swear to God, I saw I saw Metallica there, and it was like listening to a lawnmower. <laughs> and it, it, I don't think it was because of the band. It was just they were so loud, and the acoustics in that place were so bad mm-hmm. that I couldn't make out anything. It was just... It was just like standing next to a lawnmower, and that was for uh, an hour and a half. Wasn't that the uh, "Injustice for All" tour? It was. Which I, that's my favorite album of theirs. So mine too. Yeah, that that would have would have been a great show to hear if you could have actually heard it. Could have actually heard it. <laughs> you know, you know who I I I, I saw there. I saw Paula Abdul there. <laughs> you and, do like your pop tarts, don't you? You know, I can't complain. <laughs> I do her. Uh, well, maybe not now. I don't know. She seems a little crazy now. So maybe now, maybe now that I know more, I don't know. But, uh, and the opening act was, uh, Color Me Bad. <laughs> now, you know what? I can't remember the guy's name, but I, you, you'll remember, uh, the guy I went with. Yeah, the creepy guy. Yes. We and, probably don't want to say his name. I do remember it, but I won't say okay. it. Okay. And, uh, he just, out of the blue, someone I had worked with, just sort of, you know, Told me a harrowing tale of of his parents dying, and he get a whole bunch of money, and he basically blew it all. And wackadoodles tend I to mean, gravitate toward you. Well, friendly is as friendly does. <laughs> um, so you know, uh, so he just says, "I have an extra ticket. Do you want to go?" And yes, uh, I'll. What the hell? Not realizing at the time that this is the kind of guy who probably has bodies under the floorboards in his house. <laughs> Yes, not at all aware of that. <laughs> yeah, that that yeah, that was that was that was that was that was strange to say the least. Um, and then he just kept hanging around for a while. Yes, yes, he did. Had nothing else to do. Started living out of his car. Uh, just where'd you meet this guy? At, the, uh, at school? At, at the shed. Oh, at the shed. Okay. Yeah. Hopefully he's not listening to, hopefully he's not a big listener to be a Mr. 80s. Because I'm sure he will recognize himself in these conversations. It was 20 years ago, but yes, we thought you were a little strange. Yeah, probably not. Um, yeah. So, but it was, uh, it was one of those things where we were sitting, uh, at the very side of the stage. So you could actually watch, you know, the performers going backstage, 
because of the way it was designed. I don't know why they wouldn't put a curtain up in front of that, but you could actually see them sitting, you know, standing in the wings and coming up. You know, it's just you could see them going back, like when Paul Abdul did a change in the middle. This was a biology era, so I'm not. I can't remember what the name of that album was, but Spellbound. Spellbound. Thank you. Very good. And uh, it was a good enough performance. She sounded. Um, like she was probably singing to a backing track. Probably. <laughs> I'm sure she was. As we talked about last last episode with Millie and Vanilli. Millie and Vanilli. But yeah, the acoustics for that thing sucked also. And I've never really seen a bad performance. I've never really walked out of a concert and gone, wow, that was a waste of money. I actually can remember two times where I, and I think I, I, think I mentioned this uh, prior, where uh, I saw two acts at, at the shed, and while I'm, you know, standing there, you know, w- watching them play, I'm like, wow, they suck. But both times I end up buying their albums. Uh, the first one was Chris Whitley, uh, Living with the Law, and the second one was, oh, crap, um, Jesus Built My Hot Rod, Ministry. Uh, ministry, is that... Is that right? Was that Ministry or was that the Butthole Surfers? I can't remember. No, no, it's definitely Ministry. Okay. Uh, of the two. That's, but, uh, yeah, I, and uh, I think Ministry was part of Lollapalooza at the time. And that sounds they right. had some sort of, like, wild stage acts with half-naked women and some sort of, you know, wild antics that looked very Guar-esque. And I'm like, doesn't anyone want to stop and play the instruments correctly? Because, I mean, it just sounded like shit. I mean, it, it just sounded like someone was holding down a button on a keyboard and farting into a mic. It was, it was awful. I mean, they just sounded terrible. But then I, you know, I hear 120 minutes and hear Jesus be my heart, and I'm like, well, okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, I can't do ministry. I just can't do it. I mean... Pretty much for me, Industrial began and ended with Pretty Hate Machine. That's oh, yeah. pretty much the only album that you need, in my opinion, for Industrial. Yeah, that was an excellent album. <laughs> well, we've come to the end of our live show. I think so. Any final words? Um, Jesus did not build my hot rod. No. <laughs> He's not really into that kind of stuff. But he is my co-pilot. Mm-hmm. Your homeboy. <laughs> Jesus is my old Jesus is your homeboy. <laughs> the email, Mr80s at Rocketmail.com. Like us on Facebook, me and Mr. 80s on Facebook. M-I-S-T-E-R-8-0-S for Mr. 80s in all cases. Is that it? That's it. We're good. All right. Good night, Garrett Morris, wherever you are.